Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the five-alarm warning this country somehow missed. Four years ago tonight, we got our first on-camera glimpse of the fascism right in front of us. On the evening of August 11th, 2017, a horde of young white supremacists, including neo-Nazis, right-wing militias, and members of the Ku Klux Klan, descended on Charlottesville, Virginia, for an event they called Unite the Right. They marched with torches like old-time Klansmen, chanting, Jews will not replace us, as they paraded through the campus of the University of Virginia. It was eerily reminiscent of the torchlight rallies held at Nuremberg during the Third Reich, and intentionally so. The following day, they brazenly carried Confederate flags and symbols of Nazi genocide as they vowed to protect the statue of a treasonous Confederate general. And they openly embraced Donald Trump as one of their own. In fact, just months earlier, an organizer of Unite the Right shouted, Hail Trump! Hail our people! And was greeted with Nazi salutes and applause at a pro-Trump campaign rally. Another organizer was a member of the violent far-right Proud Boys, which would later lead the siege of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. In other words, Charlottesville, four years ago tonight, was a tinderbox just waiting to ignite, and inevitably, it did. In fact, we witnessed some of the violence live on this very network when one of our guests, Reverend Tracy Blackman, was whisked away for her own safety. I was invited in to give a speech uh, to that regard. And as we were closing down, uh, I've got to go, i got to go, i got to go. Oh, my goodness. I don't know what is happening here. I don't know what just happened there with our guest. Um, but uh, I, we are, we're going to try to find out what happened. Um, and she was standing at the location where it looks like now violence has broken out among the crowd. And while the footage is disturbing, we saw extremists violently clash with those opposing them. And ultimately, a young woman, Heather Heyer, was murdered when a neo-Nazi thug plowed his car into a crowd of those counter-protesters. But at the moment this country most needed some moral clarity from its leaders, Donald Trump made it clear that he had no intention and would not take sides against the fascists. You also had people that were... Very fine people on both sides. Fine people, he said. It's the exact same way that Trump later described the January 6th insurrectionists who attempted to reinstall him as president by force. They were peaceful people. These were great people. The crowd was unbelievable. And I mentioned the word love, the love, the love in the air. I've never seen anything like it. The love in the air. Thanks to Trump and his big lie, the brand of extremism that we first saw in Charlottesville and then later at the Capitol has only gained support. Just today, Trump attacked the police officer who shot insurrectionist Ashley Babbitt to defend the lives of the lawmakers that he's sworn to protect. 
Unbelievably, the former president is now putting that officer's life in danger, claiming, quote, we know who he is. This comes as the Department of Homeland Security is sounding the alarm, issuing a rare bulletin to local law enforcement to warn about the potential for more political violence. As a department spokesman, spokesperson told NBC News, we are currently in a heightened terrorism-related threat environment. That's due to unsubstantiated claims of fraud related to the 2020 election and the alleged, quote, reinstatement of former President Donald Trump, a theory made popular by QAnon believers. Joining me now is Congressman Eric Swalwell of California, a Trump impeachment manager earlier this year, and Malcolm Nance, MSNBC counterterrorism and intelligence analyst. Congressman, I'm going to go to you first because you're in a lawsuit over what happened on January 6th. I don't know if we have footage uh, that the team has just to remind people of how similar that looked to the mayhem that we saw in Charlottesville. But talk a little bit about as an elected official who is protected by those Capitol Police officers, how you respond to the president of the United States who defended the Charlottesville neo-Nazis now saying we know who the officer is who shot Ashley Babbitt and essentially teeing that officer up to be threatened by his supporters. That officer's life, uh, sadly, is in danger. He is a hero, uh, Joy. Uh, I am alive today. My colleagues are alive uh, because he had to make that uh, fateful decision, one that no officer wants to make. Uh, but a mob was crashing through the doors into the speaker's lobby. I saw them. I heard the smashing, the pounding, the breaking of glass, the chanting and had they gotten through, it was many of our more vulnerable members who were the last to leave that would have been overrun had that officer not acted so bravely. That officer has been cleared by the Department of Justice. Of course, anytime an officer uses their firearm, uh, they should be uh, investigated. Uh, and he was cleared, uh, most importantly. And so to want to out this person after being cleared uh, is only intended uh, to put that person's life uh, in danger. And this is just crushing these officers. We've had five deaths by suicide of officers who were at the Capitol on January 6th. And to see two versions of the, the same event being told uh, to really uh, re-describe and, and reimagine what happened that day, it's such an insult to the brave men and women who defended the Capitol. Yeah, indeed. Um, you know, and Malcolm, you, you seem to be in the business of prognosticating bad things that then later happen. Um, and you saw the Trump movement as a violent movement. You and I have talked about it and the, 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 the sort of open, now open, pretty open fascism of it. Just a couple of pieces of data for you, Malcolm. Morning Consult did a poll in June where 29 percent of Republicans say that they believe that Trump will be reinstated as president. A ludicrous assertion for anyone who had seventh grade civics. A Monmouth poll in June showed 63 percent of Republicans believe that Joe Biden only run during voter fraud. They believe a lot the same about Barack Obama. Um, an American Enter Enterprise Institute poll in January showed that 39 percent of Republicans said that they believe and they support violence. They support violence if political e leaders fail to act, meaning they don't do what they want. And one more, 45 percent of Trump voters are unvaccinated and so are holding the rest of us hostage to the pandemic. Your thoughts? 
You know, four years ago when Charlottesville happened, I, I recall saying on air that what we were looking at is the cotillion, the coming out party of all the disparate var various factions of the conservative right and the youth movement that Steve Bannon created through the gamer community, all coming together and forming their own wing of what would be arguably a paramilitary support organization for the Trump uh, team. That was the neo-Nazis, the Ku Klux Klan, the Boogaloo Boys, the Proud Boys, the militias, all then at that time came together at Charlottesville and marched like the Nazis at Nuremberg. And that was purposeful, including their chant of Jews will not replace us with a crazy replacement theory that they live for. We thought that that broke up after Charlottesville. We thought the opprobrium from the nation had put them down. And as I monitored them for those years, you could see that they had gone underground. But what was happening was they were congealing. And by the summer of 2020, with the George Floyd protests, they had come back together as a paramilitary of the Trump campaign, unofficially. And in 2020, uh, after the 2020 election, they have appointed themselves an insurgency. And they carried out exactly what I predicted last November, the first insurrection of what I suspect will be many insurrections. We are dealing with an insurgency in the United States, and they are now organized under the banner of Trump. My pinned tweet on Twitter says exactly that, that the Republican Party, mm. Representative Swalwell, is harboring that insurgency. And it is a white nationalist insurgency. Let's just be blunt. It is it breaks down mm. along the lines of this idea of replacement theory, which Malcolm just mentioned. So replacement theory, Malcolm just mentioned, uh, Representative Swalwell, here's Tucker Carlson promoting replacement theory, which is a core white nationalist belief system on his very popular Fox News show. Take a listen. What's happening at the border is not a crisis. This is an intentional act. This is the administration bringing felons, violent criminals into our country on purpose. Why would you do something like that only to destroy it? It's an act of hostility against the United States in order to change it forever. The only beneficiaries are the people who run the Democratic Party. And this is an effort to change the country. And we should be honest about it. So that was not on his show. That was on the Comfy Couch show, on the Fox, uh, Fox and Friends Morning Show, but still on that network. Do you you have to work with people who pretty much have that on in their offices all day and think that is mainstream beliefs? You work with these people, Congressman. Do you feel comfortable and safe working with people who, at minimum, are willing to live with that kind of fascism and white nationalism in their party? No, Joy, I don't. Uh, and we look at many of our colleagues and believe that had they not been in Congress on January 6th, they would have been on the other side of the door right next to Ashley Babbitt. And so I'm not working with them. I'm working to replace them uh, from Congress. Uh, that's the replacement theory uh, that I'm all in for is to make sure they don't come back in 2023. Uh, but it's really, Joy, these twin lies uh, that are killing us, literally killing us. The lie that the election was stolen has taken the lives of many police officers and the lie that vaccines do not work, also propagated by Tucker Carlson, Kevin McCarthy, and you know those guys uh, in the Republican Party. It's killing Americans and it's starting to kill our kids. And so the two twin lies, to make sure that they are held accountable for that, I think that's the pathway uh, to making sure that we keep the majorities in both the House and the Senate.
I mean, it's critical because we only have one. Listen, the Democratic Party has a lot of issues. Okay, I get annoyed with y'all a lot. But at least the Democratic Party is a normal political party, right? The Republican Party, as Malcolm has said, is an insurgency and is housing an insurgency. So give me another prognostication. I'm going to take the risk of scaring is caring, Malcolm. So I'm going to give you allow you to do this. (laughs) On August 13 or 14, just a few days from now, the QAnon believers, which is now a substantial portion of the Republican base, believe that Donald Trump will be reinstated as president through some magic that they only understand. When that doesn't happen, then what? Well, nothing is going to happen here in August. Uh, you know, there's a substantial portion of, you know, the gunslinging conservatives base uh, that 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 really doesn't support QAnon, even though and I've said this a year ago on this program, QAnon would would take over the Republican ideology. And it has, even though they don't allow Q shirts at Trump rallies and things like that, the belief in the inherent evilness of all Democrats and that there's a global cabal that must be destroyed by force of arms, that is now standard throughout the conservative base. So let me prognosticate a little bit more. The Republican Party, you know, I used to joke that they were vanilla ISIS, right? All of these <laughs> these militiamen and everything out there. They were like ISIS. They were like Al-Qaeda in the sense that they um, radicalized online. They would meet together in secret and they did all of these activities, which were very much like a terrorist, you know, a terrorist insurgency. Now I think they have shifted. The Republican Party is more like Sinn Féin. Uh, and the, the relationship between Sinn Féin, the Irish Nationalist Party, and the Irish Republican Army, Provisional Irish Republican Army Terrorist Group, and who called themselves freedom fighters and insurgents and had Americans, American congressmen, sending them money to buy, you know, heavy machine guns. These guys view themselves as this fanciful group of patriotic freedom fighters, the second coming of the Sons of Liberty. And there are many of them who are preparing for civil war right now. All the shame that we tried to give them after January 6th, that's gone. There are many of them right now that are ready to fight. And we're seeing politicians in the state houses and the Capitol who are actually, you know, pushing them subliminally to fight. Yeah. And by the way, Joy, who would want to come to Washington in August? I mean, that tells you everything they need. you need to know about their judgment. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. Very, very quickly, a little bit of news for our audience here. We did have uh, some uh, testimony today by a guy named B.J. Packer, a former U.S. attorney in Atlanta, who told congressional investigators on Wednesday that his uh, abrupt resignation in January had been prompted by Justice Department officials warning that Trump intended to fire him. Why? For refusing to say that the election was fraudulent. So Donald Trump was actively attempting to overthrow uh, the incoming government. So uh, you know, keep that in mind as you think about who what we're dealing with on the other side of the aisle from Representative Eric Swalwell. Representative Swalwell, thank you very much. Malcolm Nance, thank you very My much. Pleasure. Thank you. And on this four-year anniversary of Charlottesville, an event Joe Biden said inspired him to run for president. It's also a reminder that Biden chose the third anniversary of that racist outrage one year ago today to make history by announcing a black and Asian American woman, Senator Kamala Harris, would be his running mate. In a tweet today, Biden called it one of the most important decisions I've ever made. I couldn't have asked for a better partner and friend on this journey. And up next on the readout, the anti-masker is getting outright hostile and threatening violence as schools reopen. We know who you are, but we will find you and we know who you are. 
That mob going after medical professionals after a school board meeting in Tennessee. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona joins me. Plus, Senator Sherrod Brown is here on the looming battles in Congress over the Democrats' biggest priorities. And tonight's absolute worst, the Republican fetish for locking up their political rivals. The readout continues after this. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Nearly a year and a half into the pandemic, parts of America are essentially back to square one, with vaccine rejectors holding Americans who did the right thing hostage with their intransigence. And with Republican politicians in some states denying protection for the newest vulnerable population, our nation's children. Across the country and principally in the South, the Delta variant that's ravaging communities has hospitals stretched to their limits in Florida, Georgia, Louisiana and Arkansas. And Texas now has its fewest available ICU beds since the pandemic began. The search coincides with the start of the school year in parts of this country. And while California today became the first state to require vaccination or weekly testing for teachers, Republican governors Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott of Texas have doubled down on their ludicrous and dangerous mask mandate bans. But even in states where school boards are empowered to put in place masking requirements, things are going south, so to speak. In Tennessee, health officials are warning that the current surge is on track to surpass last year's. And a terrifying scene unfolded last night after the school board in Williamson County, an affluent suburb of Nashville, voted to require masks in elementary schools. We know who you are. We know who you are. You can leave freely, but we will find you, and we know who you are. We know who you are. Joining me now, U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona. And Secretary Cardona, thank you so much for being here. I got to start by asking, we're at the point now where we have to ask, how do we keep health professionals and teachers safe if you've got people who are willing to get violent 
over mask mandates? You know, it's hard enough to reopen schools with in the middle of a pandemic, um, you know, and I applaud the educators for the last year and a half who have done everything in their power to safely reopen schools and get kids back into the classroom where they learn best. Now to have to worry about poor policy or people that are frustrated and uh, threatening uh, educators and, and health professionals, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, it's, it's truly unbelievable. I mean, is there, and I don't know if there even is, this is just a genuine question, I just don't know. Is there anything that the federal government, that the Second Department of Education can do to provide for the fact that we now have to potentially have security for teachers who want to have their students masked, for school administrators, and also financial security? Because in the state of Florida, the governor is threatening to take dock the pay of people who don't make a lot of money, teachers and administrators, simply because they want to keep kids alive. Can the federal government do anything? That's literally adding insult to injury. Uh, we, we, we have policies that are being implemented now that are not safe for students. So, yes, we're working closely with all, all states, but in, in particular with uh, Florida, we're having conversations about what we can do to make sure that, number one, our students have access to safe learning environments, that educators are given the opportunity to do what they do best, um, let, let's let our superintendents do their jobs. They know what to do. It's tough enough reopening schools during a pandemic, and they shouldn't have to have their salaries threatened or uh, deal with uh, repercussions of making the right decisions. Unfortunately, look at the data. Look at the data. I mean, we're talking about the rates in Florida going up. It's dangerous, and we want to make sure that our schools are reopened for our students and that parents feel confident sending their children to school. They've been through enough already. We, we had the uh, chairwoman of the Broward County School District uh, on the show yesterday. She said she's, she doesn't care if she does lose her salary. She's going to protect students. Broward County is going to require masking. Miami-Dade has said we will not switch the uh, three districts, Broward, Alachua, and Leon County. They've put mask mandates in place despite the governor saying that they cannot do it. There's been a lawsuit by parents of kids with disabilities. Um, they are suing Ron DeSantis, saying that his ban on mask mandates violates the Americans with Disabilities Act. I mean, there are kids, first of all, too young to get vaccinated. Um, right. And then there are also kids who have pre-existing conditions who could die from covid. And there are screaming, sometimes violent parents saying they will they want no mask mandates and they want to be able to send unmasked, potentially contagious kids to school. To me, I have to ask you, do you feel that American public schools at this point are safe with those people out there? You know, I'm, 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 I have mass fatigue as well, right? But there's no way I would feel comfortable sending my children to school in a place where the rates are higher, where they're growing. We know what's right. And while we're all kind of tired of wearing the mask, we want to make sure that our children are safe and we want to make sure that they have a chance to learn in the classroom. To, to, to the governor there and to the folks that are making these decisions, don't be the reason why school is interrupted again. I talked to seniors this, uh, this week who said, I just want to have another season. So to them, I say, don't be the reason why we can't have games, extracurricular activities, and our students can't engage in those experiences because of your poor policies. Yes, we can reopen schools safely. We have to keep an eye on the Delta variant because if it accelerates due to the community spread, because we know how to keep children safe in our schools, but if it accelerates due to the community spread, I would hate to think that we have to disrupt learning again for these students. They've been through enough. Get out of the way. 
Yeah, we know that um, there have been uh, millions of parents who have disenrolled their children or failed to enroll um, their kids because of fear of COVID or because of the practical implications there. And a lot of those have been students of color. Uh, I also want to ask you about what can be done with the already passed COVID relief funds. We know that the administration is considering helping to pay some teachers who are getting docked uh, in places like Florida. We know that um, that that may have to happen in other states because Texas seems to follow them. But what about other things like schools that are actually not physically ready to bring kids back safely because they don't have adequate, you know, heating or cooling places that are too hot, buildings that don't have enough green space to allow children to play outside. How uh, how is the administration handling making sure that schools, particularly in low income and minority communities, are actually physically ready to bring kids back safely? We know the pandemic uh, affected everyone, but it affected some more than others. And as you mentioned, in the black and brown communities or the very densely populated communities, it really affected those communities. But the American Rescue Plan, $130 billion intended to safely reopen schools. I visited a school recently in DeKalb County, uh, Georgia, that fixed their uh, ventilation system to have better airflow. So the funding is there. The urgency is there. And to those places that are struggling to do that, we want to work with you. If your intent is to get children safely back into school, we want to work with you. But if your intent is to create obstacles, we're going to have the backs of our educators, of our superintendents. We're having conversations about how we can support our educators in those places. At the end of the day, educators know what to do. Lean on the health experts. You know, I don't I don't have a degree in epidemiology, and I would argue that the governor doesn't either. So let's let the health experts know who know what they're doing, make decisions and let our educators educate. Let our leaders lead. We got your back, educators. We're going to be discussing what ways we can support you better. Uh, But at the end of the day, as you mentioned, gaps were made worse during the pandemic. And I'm wondering how, how the rights of these students are being violated with some of these actions. We're looking into this. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And these kids have rights, too, or at least they should. And it it would be nice if both parties cared about them equally. Secretary Miguel Cardona, thank you very much. Really appreciate being here uh, this evening. All right. Still ahead. Senator Joe Manchin pulls a mansion and says he won't support Democrats proposed three and a half trillion dollar spending package. Does this mean that investments in human infrastructure are off the table? Senator Sherrod Brown joins me next. Don't go anywhere. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. On the heels of a massive infrastructure victory, Senate Democrats have begun work on reconciliation for their human infrastructure package. The chairs of the committees tasked with crafting the reconciliation bill have until September to figure out how to allocate three and a half trillion dollars for things like climate change, universal pre-K and affordable housing. But don't bust out the champagne just yet. Today, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin expressed his serious concerns about the grave consequences facing West Virginians and every American family if Congress decides to spend another $3.5 trillion. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi signals she's not interested in his theatrics. On a call today, she once again assured her entire caucus that there will be no infrastructure bill without a reconciliation package, period, with a T at the end. Her Senate counterpart, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, says he's optimistic. 
look, there are some in my caucus who may believe it's too much. There are some in my caucus who believe it's too little. I can tell you this in reconciliation. One, we are going to all come together to get something done. And two, it will have every part of the Biden plan in, big, in a big, bold, robust way. I'm now joined by someone who will be playing a key role in that reconciliation package, Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown, chairman of the Banking Committee. And Senator, uh, thank you so much for being here. I got to tell you, I'm a little tired of talking about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. I'm just being honest with you. When they wanted something, they got together with 20 uh, people, all white, nobody of color. And there are a couple folks of color they could have pulled in, but they were like, we don't want to talk to y'all. We're just going to have our friends and make a bill. And then everyone is expected to support that. But they don't seem committed to supporting the bigger bill, which is the thing that Democrats like yourself are fighting for. Are they in any way on the Biden team at this point? Well, they voted for the answers. I mean, ask them, but the answer is yes. I mean, last night, in a party line vote, Republicans have decided to oppose everything. I mean, we know that Mitch McConnell has said he wants Joe Biden to fail the way he said eight, uh, 20 years ago, 12 years ago, that he wanted Barack Obama to fail. So, um, but we moved forward last night. Every Democrat stayed with us, not just on infrastructure, what you talked about, Joy, but also on the budget, on the budget bill. Um, we will be we will be doing, as you call it, human infrastructure, call it whatever we want. We'll be doing major investments in housing. We will uh, we will lengthen the life expect. I mean, we will we will extend the child tax credit. The most important thing I think Congress has done in a quarter century, with possible exception Affordable Care Act. Uh, we will move forward on on all kinds of children's issues and and um, health care and and uh, family issues. So we're going to move forward on these and broadband and other things. Um, I expect we get the 50 Democrats on board, as we did last night. Um, we, when, when they see what we write in the weeks ahead, the next four weeks, on all of these, I think there's going to be great enthusiasm from not, not just Democrats here in the Senate, but from the country. Well, I mean, the thing is, I think, you know, and first of all, I don't I, I would call it the human infrastructure bill because that's what Democrats are calling it. I genuinely don't understand how Democrats name things. I don't know why y'all are not calling it the housing, child care and climate change bill. Make it real simple. Democrats come up with like really flowery names for things and then regular people don't know what it is and say, I don't like it because they don't know what it is. So that, I, I will just throw that out there as my little critique of the way the party operates. But um, make it some, you know, call the other bill shots and checks. That would have been easier to pass. That's just my opinion. But I. I I guess what a lot of people that I talk with worry about and what I worry about for you guys in terms of your future in the majority is that a lot of regular folks just feel like the 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 the, the fix is already in that people like um, Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin got the thing they wanted and that they are in politics for to do just bridges and roads and things. But that the things that the base really cares about voting rights being able to vote, just access to the vote, um, things like the police reform bill, which seems to be on its deathbed, the, the bigger picture things like extending the child tax credit and making it permanent and not temporary, that all of that is being thrown under the bus. Are people wrong to feel that? Well, I, I understand people's concerns when you hear a statement like the, the, the statement that you started the top of the show or the top of this segment of the show. I, I have that frustration, of course, too. But watch what we do. 
And we are beginning this Friday. I'm assembling the other 11 Democrats on the Banking and Housing Committee and talking about the $300 billion commitment and investment we are going to do for first-time home buyers uh, to, to really answer what's happened with Jim Crow and redlining in neighborhoods around this country, uh, to deal with lead-based paint and lead in pipes in the water going into people's homes. Um, what we do to reach broadband, not just Appalachia, rural Ohio, but also inner city Ohio. And the pandemic was the great revealer showing how so many people don't have access to, to the internet mm -hmm. for medical, medic for healthcare, for education, for jobs, for all that. So watch what we do in the next four weeks. Um, I'm committed through the month of August to these discussions, to writing this bill, um, and I, I, um, I, I'm, I'm thrilled with what we're going to be able to do. Um, and we're going to get all 50 Democrats to hang together. Some of them are going to say things. People are always saying things and getting attention and doing my, my heads down. We're going to mm -hmm. deliver, and that's what you hold us to, and that's what this show holds us to. So thank yeah. you for that. Well, I appreciate that. And I just want to note for the audience that the uh, Senator Schumer, the majority leader, has talked about the Reconciliation C Committee, which looks a lot more like America, I shall say. It does have Senator Warnock on it, Senator Merkley, uh, Senator Klobuchar, Senator Padilla. Uh, and then the moderates are Manchin, Kane, Tester and King. So that's the, the group that he's got pulling together reconciliation. Take us behind the scenes just a little bit on the conversations that you guys are having behind the scenes. Do the progressive members like yourself, who are, is able to win in a red state, so it's not as if your politics are out of line with your constituents, what kind of conversations do you need to be having or how are you having with some of the moderate members who are worried about the cost, the price, the $3.5 trillion? Is that going to well, end up I getting shrunk? Well, no, we're, it's not. We're we're going to deliver on what we said we were going to deliver on that budget bill last night. The, the three trillion dollars. Um, I, I come down to the question. I want voters in Macon, Georgia, in July of 2022 to say, you know, I voted for Biden and Harris. I voted for Warnock and Ossoff, and my life got better. We know it's going to get better because they're going to keep getting that that monthly child tax credit that lifts 40 percent of people out of poverty and, and helps to answer the anxiety that, that families feel at the end of the month trying to cobble together their dollars to pay their rent so they're not evicted. Um, they're going to see they're going to see their lives better because of this infrastructure. They're going to see their lives better because they're going to have access to broadband. They're going to see their lives better because they're going to have options on child care. They're going to see their lives better because their wages are going up now. Um, because of the way that we, because elections have consequences and elections mattered last year. And I'm not saying people shouldn't be uh, a, a bit skeptical. That's fine with that. And, and you express that well and, and in an idealistic sort of way, Joy. Um, but we're going to deliver on this. It's up. That's why I ran. I mean, this is the best, by far the best year of my career. The child tax credit, the pensions we got people, um, what we're going to do on housing, what we've already done on transit. We've invested more already in transit, the biggest increase in American history, 20 percent of highway dollars are now going to transit the way it should be. And that's not just big city transit in Cleveland, where I'm living, where I live, where, I'm, where I am right now in Columbus. It's also rural areas where where people need in a, a paratransit bus to pick them up at home and take them to their dialysis treatment three times a week. Yeah. I mean, all of these things matter in people's lives. It's up to us to deliver. It's up to to you and all of us to show people who delivered and that every Republican voted against the child tax credit, for instance, yeah. and every Democrat voted for it. Hold us to that. Well, that is why people uh, who remain Democrats vote for Democrats, because Democrats do stuff that you can actually, that actually helps you. But my advice to y'all 
Make sure your voters can reelect you. Make sure that your voters are able to access the polls, because if they are being locked out of the polls by the other party and the other party is willing to steal elections, it won't matter because they'll just reverse it. That's just what I have to say. But anyway, they Sherrod are, Brown, that's, that's exactly right. Thanks, Joy. Indeed. Thank you very much. Senator Sherrod Brown, really appreciate you. And still ahead. We heard for the first time today from the soon to be new governor of New York, Kathy Hochul. Plus, the latest on the COVID scandal. Next on The Readout. We'll be right back. I think it's very clear that the governor and I have not been close, um, physically or otherwise. And I'm going to stand right here. At the end of my term, whenever it ends, no one will ever describe my administration as a toxic work environment. New York Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul didn't mince words in her first press conference since Governor Andrew Cuomo announced he'd be resigning in two weeks. She made it a point today to distance herself from the disgraced governor accused of sexually harassing 11 women, making it clear that no one who did anything unethical in the state attorney general's report would keep their jobs. But when asked if she'd pardon Cuomo, she said it's, quote, premature for her to discuss. I'm joined now by Cornell Belcher, Democratic pollster and president of Brilliant Corners Research. All right, my pollster friend, give me the your skinny on the politics here. Uh, Kathy Hochul is sort of a moderate conservative pro NRA ish kind of Democrat. She was like on the Republican side of the fast and furious thing. She's sort of a Republican kind of figure for her politics going forward. Do you think a pardon of the governor is something that you could see happening? Well, for her politics going forward, I think a pardon of the governor doesn't help her politics going forward, nor does I think it helps the broader politics of of Democrats in the state. I mean, look, when you look at the polling around this, I mean, Maris did a rather snap poll right after um, the allegation, right after the uh, AG came out, and it showed a majority, a strong majority of of, of New Yorkers thinking that the, that the governor should resign. If not resign, uh, they should impeach him, which is a different question because you know we we usually see that sort of the the numbers behind impeachment um, not quite you know further behind on the numbers on resign but this but this wasn't necessarily the case and even among Democrats you had a majority of them who think that um, that the governor should, should resign I think joy the culture around this is is changing and particularly with women voters and there's no more important cohort uh, in the electorate uh, especially for Democrats than, than than women voters and if you look at where women voters are on this it would be politically it would be political suicide. Uh, I yeah. think to pardon the governor. And again, because she is sort of a, a right of centerish Democrat, I can't see her doing it either. There is also sort of all the talk, which you can, it's unavoidable about the future governorship, right? The future of the governorship. I believe the governorship ends at the end of this year. Um, she is likely potentially to run, but Letitia James's name is out there as well. And Letitia James, unlike Kathy Hochul, is not a NRA-ish I was with the Republicans on Fast and Furious Democrat. She's somebody who has gone after Fox News, the Trump Organization, the NRA, Purdue Pharma. Um, she has gone at some of the, the biggest boogeymen on the right and been successful. What would that look like, a Hochul versus Letitia James race, in your view? I think it would be an interesting primary. And 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 for our, you know, our, our viewers, I, I always want to sort of 
people to understand that that primaries are different from general elections and we shouldn't compare yes. them. They're, they're apples to oranges in comparison. Um, what's happening in primaries is, is fundamentally different. I think when you look at how progressive um, uh, James has been, uh, I think, and when you look at the makeup of, of a Democratic primary there in New York, you know, very diverse state, it's going to be, you know, like primaries we're seeing across the country. And I said this Joy, I think I said this to you, you know, and going in 2008, that whoever wins South Carolina is going to be the, the nominee because African-Americans are increasingly flexing their power in the Democratic primary. And yeah. and if you look at sort of both African-American and, and, and particularly women of color uh, and look at sort of the large swath of that primary that's going to come out of New York City, I think she's going to be hard to beat in a primary, although Again, uh, incumbency has its power, and you know as well yes. as I do, Joy. It's hard to take out an incumbent, and if and if you know, so so, and it's hard to beat an incumbent in a primary, uh, unless you're AOC. It's really hard yeah. to beat a sitting incumbent in a primary. No, you're absolutely right. It's going to be a race to watch because this is also a Democratic leading state where Republicans have been known to win a governorship or two. So the governorship of New York is going to be a hot race coming up. Glad to have you in the fam to talk about it. Cornell Belcher, my friend, thank you very much. All right. Up next. Texas Republicans efforts to impose new voting restrictions is bad, but the lengths they're willing to go to make that happen is tonight's absolute worst. And that's after the break. Texas is in a full-blown coronavirus crisis. Cases are surging, hospitals are overflowing, and Republicans are... Oh, they're fixated on suppressing Democratic votes so they can hang on to minority rule, apartheid style, and not on saving the lives of their constituents. Perfect. Yesterday, the Texas House Speaker signed warrants to arrest the 52 Democrats who fled the state to stop Texas from passing voter suppression bills. Here's the House Sergeant-at-Arms delivering a warrant to the Office of Representative Sinfronia Thompson, who obviously wasn't there. While many Democrats plan to stay in D.C., at least four have returned to Texas, meaning the House is just a few votes short of a quorum. The Republicans are so focused on reaching the quorum they need to pass those bills that one of the representatives, Travis Clardy, infected with coronavirus, has been voting from a quarantine room just off the House floor. So if you're doing everything you can to stop Texans from voting and seeking to arrest your political opponents like this is Putin's Russia or Mobutu's Congo, Texas Republicans, y'all are the absolute worst. Joining me now is one of those Texan fugitives from the long arm of the law, Texas De uh, Democratic State Representative Gina Hinojosa. So Representative Hinojosa, I have to start by asking you, do you fear arrest? Well, I'm not in Texas right now, so I don't currently have that fear, but definitely it is one of the reasons why I'm not in Texas. So absolutely, the threat of arrest is why, in part, we are in Washington, D.C. Can you explain to the rest of the country who thinks it's bizarre that a state has a law that says that if you don't show up for votes, you could be arrested? How is that legal? Well, we don't think it is legal. And in fact, we are utilizing the courts currently to try to block the Speaker of the House from exercising these warrants. So we filed a case a few days ago. We got an order that would prohibit a temporary restraining order that would prohibit our arrest that was stayed by the Republican, our Republican Texas Supreme Court 
So there will be a hearing on that. Meanwhile, we are talking to our lawyers and um, looking at all legal avenues to protect our freedom. Uh, it, you have a COVID crisis in your state. Your governor is preventing mask mandates. You know, Dallas and some other counties are defying it. That seems to be what the Republicans should be concerned about. And yet what they're really fixated on is this bill. I'm going to put up this is cut two for the producers. They want to ban drive through voting and 24 hour voting. They want to shrink voting hours. They want to ban distributing mail and ballot applications. They want new voter ID. They want monthly citizenship checks, which I don't even know what that means. Uh, would your citizenship change? Enhance poll watch restrictions. They want to basically make it uncomfortable and very difficult to vote. Um, can you, is there a way to explain that obsession as anything more than an attempt to hang on to minority rule? I mean, Texas is a majority minority state. There is no other way. You are exactly right. And in fact, our indicted attorney general, Ken Paxton, explained on public radio that but for his successful attempt to block Harris County from sending applications to vote by mail to all eligible voters in the county, that's where Houston's located. But for his successful effort there, Trump would have lost Texas. Now we see you just went through the provisions of the bill that we killed in our last session. Now we see that that is in the bill and it would have made it a felony for our county to do that. We know their motives. They say them out loud. They're not even ashamed anymore by their effort to suppress the voice of the people. Let, let me play this for you. This is Lauren Windsor, who's done a lot of these uh, sort of videos where she catches them telling the truth. And here she is talking about just what you just said. Here's Lauren Windsor's video. As the bill with Harris County, our largest county in Houston, they made all these changes to the election code during COVID, which just invites fraud, invites cheating. And so that's what we're going to focus on. They're going to lose seats. They're not going to gain seats next time. They're not going to take over. They're going to actually erode. So we're going to make sure we come back with more Republicans next time. We are. Yeah. I live in a real red district, but, uh, you know, I try to pick primaries so that I can help people that are in those close districts try to keep listening to him. Do you think that average Texan voters know this and understand what Republicans are up to? I think they do now. That's why we broke quorum and left the state. It made our constituents, it made Americans stop and pay attention and ask, why are these Texas lawmakers leaving the state? Why do they have to leave the state? What's going on? And we're all awake now to how fragile this democracy is. After January 6th, when they could not take control of our government by brute physical force, they are now going state by state to accomplish what they did not there. They are trying to hold on to power at all costs. They are trying to silence the will of the majority of voters. And that's what we stood up, walked out to stop. We stood up, walked out to protect the freedom to vote. And now for a month, we've been in D.C. urging Congress, urging the president to prioritize this issue and to pass federal voting rights legislation before it's too late. We can only yeah. hold the line so long in Texas. We're the minority right. party. And Amen. we need Congress to act now. Well, thank you for all that you've done. Texas State and Democrats are, are showing us how it's done. Thank you, State Texas State Representative Gina Hinojosa. Thank you. That's tonight's readout.
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.